You're listening to a production of Swanson Media. What's up, everybody? This is Joe Swanson. Welcome back to another episode of Sullen Radio. You know you can always hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at OG Joe Swanson. You can also hire me to either speak at or host your event. If you'd like to do that, shoot me an email at ogjoeswanson at gmail.com, and uh, I'd love to come out and be a part of your event. Um, This episode of the podcast is part one of a two-part conversation I had with tattooer, innovator, machine builder, Seth Safari. Um, It was a great talk, so we're going to get right into it. If you were about to 15 seconds skip me through the commercials, well, you don't have to do that. You'll have to wait till later to do that. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation I had with Seth Safari. That's it. Let's get right into the show. This is Sullen Radio with Joe Swanson, the premier art-driven podcast. Hello. Hey, Seth. How you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? Dude, I am doing really well. At the end of a, a long day, got the baby to sleep, and uh, my, wife yeah. is, my wife is occupied with uh, Hulu. And uh, so it's cool, man. I'm excited to fucking talk to you. Yeah, dude. Uh, sometimes getting the kids to bed, it's like, it's like the, that's what signifies the end of the day when you can finally chill or even, even finally work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like my kids, I feel like I, I, it takes me an hour from when I tell them to go to bed until they actually get in bed. It takes, it takes a good hour. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's hard to wind them down, you know, but uh, once they're wound down, like, the, the little guy uh, that we have in the house right now, he's five months old. And, well, he's turning six, yeah, in like a couple weeks. He's turning six months old. So he's he's pretty like solid on a routine routine, you know. Like he has to be in bed at a certain time or that motherfucker's grumpy, you know. So we yeah, try to sure. we try to keep it on, on a lockdown over here. But uh, how much work are you doing after work? <laughs> um, usually it's like uh... – Usually it's like clerical stuff for the cafe. Like my wife's usually working on like payroll or scheduling or event planning, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, so there's always it's there's always the like I don't have a workshop at home anymore. I try to like I try to keep it somewhat separate, and you know I'll still I'll I'll do a little bit of black claw stuff at night, like writing um, content for the website or content for social media or answering questions, mm-hmm. et cetera, you know, trying mm-hmm. to like, we've been, we've been uh, building a new website for black claw over the last six months. And um, it's been an incredible amount of, of uh, copywriting, mm-hmm. you know, damn man, you know, it, it, you got a lot going on the uh, cafe that you were just, down scrubbing condensation out of the fridge at uh yeah that t- yeah. talk about that oh man um yeah we have you know the walk-in cooler in the basement you know we have all the all the all the drinks and um you know all the milks for the you know you wouldn't believe how much milk you go through in a coffee shop like gallons every day and uh so we've got this walk-in cooler full of milk and it's you know it doesn't seal properly and it's leaking condensation and i've got bus tubs full of water and I'm out there with like a janitor mop and a, you know, rolling bucket and, uh, I'm doing real work. You know, I've got, (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm doing stuff that people, you know, make 10 or 12 bucks an hour doing, and I don't even get paid that, Yeah. you know, and I'm putting in like a full-time job hours at the cafe making like no money doing it, but it's cool. It's like 
when I work shifts, I'll make like 25 bucks in tips. And I'm like, I got a bunch, I got a bunch of singles. You know? yeah. It's like, like a uh, change jar. Definitely. It seems like it's one of those things. That's a passion for you. You know, I've kind of followed, you know, you on social media for a while and anybody who's done that for any length of time knows it. You know, you're into VWs, you're into motorcycles, you know, and, and a few other little things. It. Yeah. I, I find I tend to go head first into stuff and it's like, Oh, you like coffee? Cool. Open a coffee shop. You uh-huh. know, it's like, like I can't, I can't allow myself any rest for some reason. I was just talking to a guy earlier today about how, like when I finally get something to a point where it's like, doing better than breaking even, all of a sudden I need a new project that struggles. Right. You know, it's something that needs all my attention in order to even break even. And that's like where we're at with the cafe. It requires so much work and it's like definitely still in the red by a, mm. a, by a, a good bit. And it's going to be a year before we're in the black. And, um, I don't I'm hoping that I'm hoping that's it. I'm hoping that I can stop opening businesses that that don't make me any money and that just become a labor of love you know fortunately um you know black claw is uh it it definitely uh, black claw is um is worth the effort you know it's definitely something that um i get a lot of gratification and satisfaction from doing and a lot of that is um feedback from from my peers from the tattoo community and that you know how happy everybody is with the brand as a whole and the way that we do business and the products that we bring and the way we bring them. I think that, um, you know, like I've learned a lot about actually running a business Mm -hmm. doing and having a partner like, like grime. So I'm able to take what I've learned from running black claw for the last two years and apply that to running the cafe and focus not just on a product or a place, but on building a brand and, creating an emotional connectivity to a brand and a place where people want to be. And if they can't be there, then they want to participate some way. Like, you know, somebody on the other side of the world might, you know, might see our social media and go, man, that place looks rad. I like, I want a t-shirt or I want some of their coffee or whatever, you know, and they want, they want to be part of it. And operating black claw has taught me a lot of how that works, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so yeah, in short, I do keep, I keep really busy. Yeah, man. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. Um, there was a video of you, and it was man. I've looked for it again on YouTube. Now, this is a long time ago. This is when you when YouTube was just, you know, kind of popping off. Not not as popular as it is now. And it was right. you riding a fixie across <laughs> uh, Baltimore. I think Baltimore, right? Um, yeah, I was riding. Yeah. What? Where, where? Talk about that time, man. I know you at one point were obsessed with bikes, and I still, I still ride a bike. Not as much as I would like to, but yeah. When I moved to Portland, the first thing I did was have a handmade bike uh-huh. made for my from like a Portland bike builder. Nice. Sorry, I'm taking my boots off, so I'm a little squirmy, right? Okay, there we go. I had, I've been I've been in boots all day. My my feet are pumped. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, I was I. Uh, when I, when I lived in Baltimore, I commuted by bike all the time. You know, I lived just a few miles from work and it was like a nice uphill ride there. And I'd, I'd, you know, I'd stop at Whole Foods and grab a sushi roll and then I'd hit the gym, I'd get my hour workout and I'd ride to work and then I'd coast downhill the whole way home, you know? And, um, and, uh, that period that was like right around 06, I believe, 05, 06, 
getting into 07 and 07 ended up being like the worst year of my life. Hmm. Like I had like, I felt like everything that could have possibly gone wrong went wrong that year. Like I bought this, <laughs> bought this house and like it ended up being this crazy money pit where like it was like some shit out of a movie, man. Like, I mean, dude, it started with having literally 12 grand in parking tickets Oh my over the course of like a, like over the course of a year in Baltimore, I accumulated with fees and penalties and and late charges. I got twelve G's in parking ticket fees, and um, it uh, it kind of came to a head. Um, one like one weekend, I like I go out to my car. I think it was like on a Friday or something. I can't remember exactly. I go out to my car and there's a fucking boot on my car. You know, like an immobilizer deal yep. put on the wheel. And I had I had paid off all my tickets. They did like this ticket amnesty where I was able to pay it off for like a certain percentage. It was like three or four thousand bucks, and I just like fuck it, I'm paying it. And I went and paid. It. And then like a couple days after I paid it, there was a boot on my car, and I call down to the city, and I'm like, "Yo, there's a boot. It's obviously a mistake." They're like, "Oh, we're sorry. We'll send somebody out within the hour. It'll be gone." So right. of course it's fucking gone. The next day, I go to leave my house, and there's a fucking boot on my car again. <laughs> God. So I call down there again and I'm on hold for like 40 minutes. And uh, while I'm on hold, I'm not even paying attention to the car. I look out the window to tell them where the car's parked because in, you know, in Baltimore, you don't have designated parking. It could be like blocks away. Okay. So I had to tell them on the phone where it was parked. And when I look out the window, the boot's gone again. I'm like, fuck, man. <laughs> they're, just, they're just fucking with me. And then the next day, I, I have an appointment to tattoo this dude who he'd come in from San Francisco. He's an old Baltimore friend and he wanted to get something finished. So he came back and it was like a, like a 10 a.m. appointment. And I, I never worked that early, but I was like trying to get him in before, you know, trying to make it work. So I go, I go and I'm, I'm getting ready to tattoo the guy. It's first thing in the morning. And my, uh, my shop dude looks out the window and he's like, yo man, they're, they're towing your car. And I'm like, what? And I go outside and I'm, I'm all set up to do the tattoo. I'm like ready to start. And I go outside and I'm like, yo, I paid my parking tickets. Why are you towing my car? And they're like, we have no record of your, uh, and I'm like, you booted my car the last two days. What the fuck? So I'm like, I have a receipt in my car. I go to reach for the door handle to open my car. And this woman just shoves me like, pff, like shoulder checks me away from my car. And my, my helper dude, Gus, who made machines with me for years, he calls the cops. He's like, "Hey, one of the one of your officers just assaulted my boss. We want to press charges." So, fucking neck. So the the officer the the meter maid calls in. She's like, "Oh yeah, cool." And she like gets on her radio and she's like, calls signal thirteen, which means an officer in distress. So while we're sitting there waiting for the cops to show up, they just like they come and swarm on my shop like twelve cop cars, a helicopter, paddy wagon, city trucks, like the whole deal. They like. It was like some like they like most wanted shit. And they get there and they immediately throw me in handcuffs. And they she said that I assaulted her. And uh it started this crazy like snowball of bullshit where like so I go I go to court, I spend like five G's on a lawyer, the the judge doesn't believe me. I bring witnesses, like five or six witnesses with me. She doesn't want to hear anybody. She listens to one person and she's like, I don't believe you. Um you're guilty. I'm gonna give you probation before judgment. Um, you're on probation. You got to go to anger management classes. You got to do. Um, uh, uh, I had to go to um, community service, hundred hours community service, the whole fucking deal. And um, I, uh, 
I go, I do the community service, well, a good bit of it, and I and I and I deal with the anger management class thing, and they are supposed to mail certification of it happening to the to the probation officer who's supposed to send it to the judge. Mm-hmm. Probation officer forgets to send it to the judge. Judge the warrant for my arrest. So now I have the original charge that I was on probation for plus violation of probation. And I'm looking at a legit five to 10 year bid because it's an assault on an officer. So I have to pay like, it was like five or 10 G's for another lawyer. And I end up my, I end up having a, to foreclose, to get my house foreclosed on during this period because I didn't have any money. Like I, I was so tapped out from paying a lawyer on a bullshit assault charge that I, like I lost my ass. And in the process, in the middle of all this, I had just had my second kid. We were living in a house that was way too small. So we bought this other house in my mom's name to like try to fix up. It was a fixer upper in a nice neighborhood where there's some good schools and shit. And um, I get an offer for somebody wanting to buy my shop. He wanted to buy Reed Street from me. And I'm like, cool, dude gives me a $25,000 deposit. I take it and I give it to a contractor who gets to work. He guts the house. He sands the floors he puts up some some shit he's working on the place and then the guy who was supposed to buy my shop backs out of the deal so this new house this old house old ass house was gutted i'm kind of crossing stories here because it's all kind of inter um this 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 new house that we're trying to fix up is all gutted the dude forgets to uh empty all the water lines in the house i have to halt working on it because i don't have any money so the house is locked up, no one's using it or anything, and it and winter comes and the fucking pipes freeze and burst and the house it, the water main had broken and it was rushing water for a week before anyone found it. Mm-hmm. So it just completely destroyed this house that we had already started working on and I'd already put twenty five thousand dollars into it. I was already in the hole for the lawyers for fifteen grand. Um, barely hanging on to the house that I was living in because I've got two kids, um paying two mortgages out of pocket. Um, you know, like way behind on my bills because any nut that I would have had was spent on the lawyers. So like the the breaking point for me in that year was was uh, after I'd gotten locked up the second time on the warrant, they let me out of jail at like six or seven o'clock in the morning and I walk the three miles home in fucking freezing rain and I get to my house and my daughter's all stoked to see me and she's like spinning around, making herself dizzy, acting crazy and she falls and she busts her face open on the coffee table. She gets this big gash from one, like her whole eyebrow split open and I grab her and I scoop her up in a blanket and I'm like pretty chill. I'm going to take her to the hospital and I get her stitches. It's no big deal. She'll be fine. I walk out to my car where it's freezing rain and my window had been smashed out. My dashboard had been gutted apart and somebody had tried to steal my car and I was like, fuck this. I'm done. Like it was like this crazy snowball effect of bullshit. Like, you know, from the the assault charge, the house falling down, like literally the house needed to get bulldozed. And it was like all this shit just culminated in me saying like, fuck it. I, I threw a bunch of my stuff in storage. I sold everything else. I packed up the family and I moved to Spain. And I like I literally mailed the keys to the bank with a note that said, go fuck yourself. Because <laughs> the first house that I bought, I bought it at like the peak of the bubble when it was like the most expensive it could possibly be. And then, and they were like, well, yeah, you, you know, I put, when I sold my, I sold a building that the Reed Street was first in, I made some money on that and I took all of it and I put it down on this house, put like 80 grand cash down. So I had some equity. 
well, they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll loan you money on the rehab, no problem, because they knew that I was going to have the two houses, and they were like, yeah, no problem. So then when I, I finally got around to applying for the for the, uh, the equity loan, they were like, no, sorry, the market's crap. Your house is worth a hundred grand less. Now you're upside down on a house that I was up on. I was up eighty grand on. So um, it was like just that year was just a total fuck you, and and I I hightailed it to to Europe for eight months. And while I was there, like, um, I was trying to be business partners with this this dude from Argentina who I couldn't get I couldn't get him to work. Man, it was like every day, it was it was like mañana, mañana, mañana. Every day was like we'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it. Tomorrow. What's the what's the hurry? Let's relax. Let's chill out. And before I went there, he told me like, you know, we've got an apartment for you guys. We've got a workshop for you. We've got parts. We've got an employee. We've got a helper. We've got um, anything you need, a machine shop. We're ready to go. Like my plan was to roll over there and set up something like Workhorse, but for Europe, like do all metric shit, do all new frames, all new builders, the whole shit, and nothing was lined up. So I get out there with my with my kid's mother, my two kids, and we brought our babysitter with our nanny with us, and we show up, and this dude's got a stain in his fucking living room with his whole family. And, and like we got, and I got like 400 bucks in my pocket and nowhere to be. And, um, I, uh, I had, I met, I met this guy who, uh, I was very fortunate to know this guy named Mao. Mao is this old Spanish dude. who's like OG, like biker, like uh, tattoo shop owner from, from Spain. Um, and I've known him for years and years and just so happened we lived in the same neighborhood outside of Madrid and he had a guy who was making machines for him, this dude Coco and Coco didn't speak any English, but he invited me to come down and work in his, in his workshop, uh, about an hour South of Madrid. And I went down there every day for a week and I just made machines with this dude. Like he just gave me, gave me parts to make frames and he gave me coils and he gave me everything I needed. And I managed to like make a handful of machines. And, and fortunately I, I had, stopped taking orders for machines for about a year prior to that because I was so wound up and so stressed that I was like playing catch up all the time and it created a bit of a demand for my stuff. So I eBayed like the first dozen machines I made when I got there and I was able to generate enough money to get a house, get a workshop and like start working while I was there in spite of this dude who was like a fucking total albatross and couldn't get shit done at all. So that ended up being like a good reset for me to like mm-hmm. sort of like take stock of what was going on and ready myself to come back to the States and come to Portland. When did things turn around on that trip to Spain? When did you feel like you were, you know, feeling like that shit storm was passing? I think when, when my phone wouldn't work, you know, <laughs> like when I couldn't get calls, when I like, because I was working, I was living like in the countryside, like an hour outside of Madrid. I was supposed to be tattooing at this dude's shop in Madrid, but he didn't have a fucking autoclave or thermofax. And like he had three shops, but enough supplies for one shop, you know? So he had a dude on a bicycle that was like his shop dude that would go from one shop to the other to like get a stencil, autoclave a thing, ultrasonic, thing, you know? And it was like he was running like three shops out of, you know, like spread super thin. And I was like, fuck this, I'm not even going to bother tattooing because it was a nightmare. It was like a chore, but the guy was like my business partner. So I couldn't go work in somebody else's tattoo shop, you know, like it would have been, and he was the one who, even though it was a shitty situation, he's the one who had me come to Spain. So I couldn't blow the dude off as much as I wanted to. 
and I, I couldn't work at a shop as much as I wanted to. So I just kind of hung out up in the hills out in this weird little village. And the village had been made like for, mil- for U.S. military years and years ago. And then they closed the military base. So it was like this half vacant town where there was a bunch of Spanish people that lived there that were resentful of Americans because the Americans came and made this place and then abandoned it. And half of the houses were incomplete. Like they were just foundations and just a few walls and shit. And there were these crazy like estates, like, you know, huge villas with big stone walls and swimming pools and fountains. And it looked like it looked like some fucking Beverly Hills shit. (laughs) Right. But out like in in the like high desert in Spain. And you get like this big, crazy mansion for 1500 bucks a month. And I had an in-ground pool and my front yard was like a park. It was, and I had a big, like a sliding steel gate, you know, the whole shit. And, um, and not people not being able to get a hold of me for the most part. Like I had to like, I had to walk a mile to get to an internet cafe that had dialogue, mm-hmm. you know, and like I would be able to check my email once or twice a day and they would close for siesta from like two to two o'clock to five o'clock. And you'd go into this fucking internet, internet cafe and there'd be dudes in there with their shirts off talking to chicks on the internet, you know, just like, you know, like flexing and posing and shit, you know, like in these internet chat rooms, like it was fucking 1989 or some shit, you know, like, Crazy. like they had, just first gotten access to AOL, you know, and, um, you know, the phone line, the landline was shared with neighbors and it was like, kind of like, it was a, it was kind of a step back. And I think that that would like being forced to slow it down and being forced to just like be where I was, was kind of a, it was a, it was an important turning point for me to just like, Go, all right, well, now I'm here and you can't, you know, I can't look at my phone to get out of it. I can't get on the internet to get out of it. I can't go to the strip bar. I can't do shit, you know, ride my skateboard, whatever it was, you know, I would, I had my bicycle and I had my kids and I had plenty of hash, you know, that was it. But, you know, after a while I, um, I couldn't deal with the lack of a work ethic. You know, I couldn't deal with people not having any sense of urgency to complete anything you know everything was a back burner issue everything you know we got there on christmas day and nobody worked for the next three weeks and i was losing my mind i'm like i take one day off for christmas and that's christmas right i don't fucking celebrate christmas i take christmas off because my kids like christmas and these people are like oh yeah we got to have the celebration because of these guys and the celebration because of this and there's like the three kings festival and there's the this and the that and i'm like fucking come on dude let's get back to work and nobody wanted to work and then, and then, you know, like all of August, everything closes for the whole month of August, you know? So it's like trying to get anything done was just a nightmare. And finally I was like, I got to go back to the States. Mm-hmm. I can't be on the East coast. It's making me too angry. I'm getting in, you know, getting in trouble, getting in fights. You know, I'm like too old for getting, for getting into this shit. And I, and I was like thinking like maybe Austin, maybe Chicago. Um, I thought about maybe in Richmond, Virginia, but I felt Richmond was too close to Baltimore and I would, hadn't, would have, I really wouldn't have like actually escaped mm-hmm. that, like the mid Atlantic. I wanted to get out of the mid Atlantic and do something else. And like my friends at Atlas, Atlas tattoo, Jerry Ware and Dan Gilsdorf were, they, I'd known those guys when they lived in Boulder, Colorado, and they would sometimes come and work with me in Baltimore and we'd we'd do conventions together and stuff for years. And, and finally they, they made it out to Portland. Like, you got to come here. You got to come visit. You're going to, you're going to want to stay and no shit. My first day there, my first day in Portland, I was like, I'm staying. That's it. Like, I'm fucking, I don't even want to get on. The, I didn't want to go back to Spain 
to go get my shit. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I had the, I had the, uh, my kids and their mom go a month ahead of me and I went back to Spain to tie up loose ends and to pack up all of our stuff and, and ship it over. And then I came a month later and like, now it's like, I don't, I don't want to leave. It's like, I'm finally like, all right, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. What is it about Portland that you love so much? Dude, it's so easy. It's so easy. Like the day to day, like no matter how hectic my life gets, no matter how shitty the traffic is or how stressful it's, it always feels like home and it always feels like easy. Mm-hmm. There's no struggle for parking. People aren't angry. You know, like there's, you know, in a place like Baltimore, there's such a sharp divide between people with money and people with no money. And any place you have um, such a contrast of class, mm-hmm. people are angry. And for whatever reason, people here just get along and it's kind of the norm to not have anything here. Like people are just chill with like having and working 12 hours a week and not, and have not having a car and they take the bus everywhere and it's totally normal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally chill to just like live within your means, even if you have like little to no means. And I think that the focus here is more on making a life as opposed to making a living. And there's not as much pressure to generate income to generate stuff you're just you're okay it's doesn't matter you go to the river you go to the mountain you go to the you know you go to the beach you it's what you do you go pick berries you go climb trees pick apples your fucking dog go to you know go hang out with your kids and there's no there's no rush to be like a salary man here you know mm-hmm. it's just it's it has been fairly inexpensive for a long time and now it's starting to become more expensive because there's a huge influx of uh, people from California moving here. They're like, whoa, it's fucking cheap there. I can sell a house for a million dollars and buy one there for 400000 You know, So now houses that were previously 250 to $300, they are getting they are driving – the Californians are driving them up to like 450 500 because they got plenty of money. You know, So what initially – I guess what initially drew a lot of people here was that it was cheap and easy. And now there's more, there's more competition. Which I think might be really good because I I feel like there's like somewhat of a lack of super strong work ethic here where people think that like you don't really have to hustle. And what I found coming here as like as a career hustler was that it's easy to just crush it. You know, like if you have any degree of hustle in Portland, you're just killing it. If you have a car, holy shit, you're killing it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And um, now there's more people like me that are coming here that are going, What I'll work fucking I'll work 40, 50 hours a week, you know, and 40 hours a week seems like a lot now, but it still doesn't feel stressful at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like you go to a store and people talk to you. They're like, Hey man, how's your day? And you're like, it's actually pretty good or it's not so good. And they actually, they, they have a conversation with you and it's not like some like contrived small talk bullshit. They actually, and it becomes annoying because you go to get a coffee and you're in line for 20 minutes waiting for everyone in front of you to talk about their day the plan. And it's like, no joke, man. When I first moved here, I'd go to the grocery store and the girl, the checkout girl would be like, so you got, you got plans this weekend? And I'd be like, what can I do now? Like, Fuck yeah, I got plans. You know, like, you know, I thought every girl was hitting on me. <laughs> and then I realized that they were just being nice and they're just, they're just stoked to be there. They're like, I got a job and I, you know, I, I pour the coffee or I bag the groceries or I wash the dog or whatever it is. And everybody's just fucking happy. Uh-huh. And that's really what it is. It's just a, just an overall good vibe that I haven't experienced anywhere else. Yeah. How much different is the tattoo scene up there from when you first dropped in that city to now? 
dude, it's fucking so <laughs> so that's hard. That's overwhelming because man, like having taken so much time off from being a full time tattooer, it's so intimidating now. Like I I see people here that have been tattooing for a tenth the time that I have. They've been at it for like two years and they're working out of a private studio and they're booked for six months and they're killing it. Mm-hmm. You know? Like just fucking new young talented people who are doing amazing tattoos and there's also i mean the, the majority aren't so great the majority are fucking terrible but there's but there are there's a strong core of great tattooers here and it's sort of like um there's like these like nucleus shops you know like atlas is like the pinnacle as far as i'm concerned people come into my shop and they're like your shop's amazing and this is the best shop and i'm like nah you should go check out atlas like and all on it you know, like, and I, like I, I had a meeting with a woman the other night, uh, like food service business stuff for a pro- another project I'm working on. And she was, she was telling me that she's like, I'm going to Lombard street and they're so amazing. And she had no idea that I own, own the shop and I'm like kind of biting my tongue. And then she's like, they're the best in Portland. And I'm like, I'm like, to be honest with you. And I, and I like, I, I was like the disclaimer, like disclaimer is I have an interest in the shop. And I often send people to this to other shops for other things, depending on what it is. Because somebody comes in and they want a portrait, I can't. I don't feel good about letting them get out of my place, you know, and and so on. But to answer your question, man, it's extremely intimidating. You got Jason Kendall here, and yeah. everyone that works for him is fucking amazing. And you've got Dan Gilsdorf and all the Atlas dudes, and everyone that works there. And it seems like they're hiring a new person every week who's amazing. They're just like sucking up. Everyone who comes to town who's worth a shit, they'd get snatched up immediately. Like fucking Tim Lehigh's there now, you know? Like what the fuck? Like how? <laughs> like how's my shop supposed to compete when these shops are snagging everybody who's amazing? You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but we have some we have some good people, you know, some good uh, great people at my shop. Like really good people, good artists, solid tattooers. Um, and there is a really strong sense of community where all the tattooers in town pretty much get along. Yeah. You know, but yeah, it's how much different is that from, you know, when you had Reed street, the way you ran that shop, how much different do you run Lombard based on the culture of tattooing? And well, when I, when I had Reed street, Dan Higgs worked with me for a little bit. And when he first, the first, first day there, he was like, okay, first things first, we have no competition, only enemies. (laughs) <laughs> and I was just like, really? he's like, yeah, like fuck everyone. And I was like, okay, rule number one, fuck everyone. So like, that's the way I handled the shopping ball tomorrow, you know? And, um, it wasn't that I was like trying to like isolate myself or alienate anyone, but it got to a point where I was like, there really wasn't anybody in town I wanted to get tattooed by, you know? And it, and it was really easy to become a big fish in a relatively small pond. There were only a handful of shops there. Mm-hmm. And most of the people running shops hadn't even tattooed much before they opened their shops. They were like, well, I, I'm going to own a shop because no one else has a shop here. So they right. just opened up, opened up shops and learned how to tattoo on their customers. And I think that um, being the guy that all the local tattooers came to to get machines and to get tattooed by re- was really – it was easy to get an inflated sense of mm-hmm. self-worth and ego in a place like that. And I was like, you know, why should I be here? I don't want to be the best one in town, you know? And now in Portland, I like, you know, I'm like, uh, <laughs> like I hope no one sees this one, you know, yeah. you know, and I get tattooed now more than ever. I think. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, And there's a strong sense of community here. Yeah, that's cool. You know, it's um, something that I've kind of seen like in in what you've done throughout kind of your career. I want to talk about the Reed Street Forum. When did that shit happen? Um, And when do you and how did that happen? Because the Internet was still kind of like it seemed like you were on kind of the cutting edge with um, with that shit. What happened? I like I had an old buddy of mine who um, uh, we played in a, in like a shitty like wannabe punk band together uh-huh. when we were kids. He was building websites and he offered to build me a site in exchange for some tattooing. And I like I did a uh, half sleeve on him and he built me a website. And while he was doing it, he was like, "Check out you know you check out all these functions and these features we can add. Like we can add a forum." And I'm like, "What's a forum?" <laughs> and he's like, "It's where people get online and they talk about stuff." And I was just like. You know, so I started digging around looking at internet forums and I found, you know, it was like gun owner forums and beanie baby forums. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't anything tattoo except for Starlight. Starlight was was Mario's shit, Mario Barth's Uh. uh, page, and it was predominantly scratchers. Um, There were a couple of people on there who were witty and insightful and interesting. And from what I could tell on the internet, like, people that I would maybe want to know, you know, and this was kind of the first, this was the first generation, the first era of people communicating online in that way outside of like AOL chat, you know, instant messenger and shit. This was like, it was very, it was very new. And on the Starlight forum, it was very like, it was kind of a scratcher vibe, you know, there would be like somebody would post a thing or ask or ask a question. And then a bunch of people would jump onto it and, and give a bunch of misinformation because they didn't know anything. And then a, a tattooer who knew it, who knew something would go, fuck all of you, you suck. <laughs> you know. And I was like, man, I should make I really should make a forum and I should poach all the people that are worthwhile and create this thing and start networking and start trying to build an online community of tattooers who are interested in exchanging information and networking throughout the world, uh-huh. like thinking, man, I could, I could get to know people on the other side of the world and maybe go work with them or they could come work with me or we, it would, yeah, I, I thought of it as like a modern way to do letter writing, you know, like the, yeah. goal, the correspondence, like, like Paul Rogers and Sailor Jerry would do that, send each other letters. Did, did you have, a, did you have an idea that of uh, how to kind of protect it? Cause at that time, I mean, things were still information was still like really coveted you know these days it's all out in the open but did you did you have a strategy or think about that when when you said hey i'm going to open it up hey guys i hope you're enjoying the show this episode of the podcast is brought to you by tattoosmart.com you can go check them out on instagram as well at tattoosmart Um, this is a digital tools um, store that uh, will get you going if you're using digital as part of your design process, uh, either iPad Pro or a Wacom tablet. Um, And I think iPad Pro has taken over. This is just my personal opinion. Um, It's really easy and accessible. Uh, You can use an app called Procreate. And I see a lot of guys jumping right into it that I never thought would be using digital tools and they're using them. And Tattoo Smart has Procreate brush sets for you, makes things really easy and um, incredibly efficient when you're in the design process. So go check them out, tattoosmart.com. If you use the promo code SWANSON, you're going to get 10% off your order. So go check them out at tattoosmart.com. Make an order, use the promo code SWANSON, and you're going to get 10% off your order. tattoosmart.com, 
Ancient Craft Modern Perspective. Now, the show is also brought to you by TattooNow.com. And TattooNow did my website, SullenRadio.com. It's a beautiful website. Um, they have a, a basic responsive website package that they offer. Um, if you go to TattooNow.com forward slash SullenRadio, you're going to get $50 off them building you a website. So um, if you're looking for a website, if you're a business, if you're an artist, um, especially if you're a tattoo artist and you want to set yourself apart, um, go get a nice website that's going to be easy to use, that has a gallery, that has a store, that has um, places that you can showcase what you got going on. Head over to TattooNow.com forward slash Sullen Radio. Get $50 off their basic responsive website build and set yourself apart. All right, that's it. Enjoy the rest of my talk with Seth Safari. Initially, initially, no. Initially, it was it was wide open. Let it ride. And, and yeah, well, I didn't know I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to come off as um, elitist, um, you know. So I kind of just initially left it open, and then it just like the floodgates were open, and it was just like all sorts of people. And I found I found myself having to filter like figure out who was who was a reliable source who's reputable who's mm. who's an actual person who has done an actual apprenticeship who actually knows what they're talking about so we started having people fill out profiles you know i had a couple of administrators and moderators working with me that were sort of like filtering a bit um and it sort of we we needed to start filtering to cut down on the weird negative attacks and shit talking where people would go and make a fake account and then yeah. talk a bunch of shit and like, you know, make fun of somebody or, or, you know, whatever it was, just, you know, talk shit, about, you know, about Mario, for example, you know, they'd come on there and talk shit about Mario or his wife, you know, yeah. and that reflected poorly on me. And, um, so we started, you know, we had it passworded and then people would email for a password. And, and I had uh, a few different moderators working with me at that time who I unbeknownst to me were like complete dicks to applicants. They were like you know, fuck you scratcher. And it was, and it would be people that I knew, but I didn't know that they were getting denied access. So they were being treated like shit by that one dude in particular, my friend who was, who was drunk most of the time. And he would get on there and moderate the applications while drunk and just fucking start mouthing off and call people faggots and fuck you and this and that. And, uh, oh man, I should probably, um, are you able to edit this stuff before you, before you hear it? I'll just hit pause. Yeah, my kid's about to come in, and my dog's gonna go fucking bananas. Yeah, no sweat. We'll just we'll just hit pause and then uh, come back to it. No problem. It's nice when they're safe at home, right? Yeah. Man. All right. So, um, yeah, dude, it was it, it got crazy because um, people would assume that it was me mm-hmm. doing the moderating, and I'd go I'd go to a convention and just get dirty looks, fucking left and right, and but people who I thought I was cool with, or people who I'd never met, and it was just like, man, fuck that dude, he's a dick. He's a snob, whatever. He's just doing it to sell more machines. And I was like, like, man, like if I was doing it to sell more machines, wouldn't I just let everybody in? You know, like why would I be denying people if it was about selling machines, you know? Um, and then there became like this battle of the forums where everybody was like, Well, well, I'm gonna open my own forum, you know, and like it like spawned like dozens of forums and then there became like machine builder forums and machine builders guilds and fucking jerk each other off club, you know, fucking <laughs> Like it was like it became so ubiquitous and so everybody doing it that I was like, fuck it. I don't want to do it anymore. Like everyone's doing it. Why bother? So I turned it over to uh, Adam Sky, 
who was running Tattoodles at the time, mm-hmm. and he merged the two forums, and I fucking peaced out. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting, man, the the way things have come with like respect to media and sharing of information. And, um, you know, back, like I remember walking around, I think it was probably the 98 um, tattoo tour in Miami Beach, Florida. And um, I think you, if I remember correctly, it was either roses, but I believe it was butterflies you did on on this girl's like shoulders, which butterflies, Uh yeah, totally beautiful. And um, I remember just like trying to grab information. You actually uh, turned me on to uh, Higgins Black Magic Inc. for uh, painting watercolor and told me about some uh, of the little uh, the glue that I could put on the. Uh, edges of like a top hat, you know, where I could just paint across and then the glue peels oh, liquid, up. Mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah a liquid mask. You no, know, so. oh, man, like I lost, like I, I didn't realize, uh, like I didn't realize till years later that I actually know that chick somewhat and we still communicate uh, via like Instagram and shit like years later. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, when she, we started following each other, I'm like, I know this chick from somewhere. I think I know this chick. And I'm, oh, yeah, I tattooed her at that Miami convention and I did butterflies yep. on her shoulders. I totally yeah. remember that. That's crazy, man. It was a cool show, man. Sabado was there. Like, I remember, um, you know, that was another dude that I that I really was stoked on seeing his work in, in person and um, met his uh, through my buddy Matt Hodell, who knew him and had gone over with uh, um uh, Brad with uh, Brad from Iron Age Tattoo. Uh, yep, and they went yeah. over to Japan together yep. and, and worked with Sabado. So I, I met those guys and um, saw his uh, apprentice, I think, at the time, or one of the guys that worked with him who had a crazy, like, full black work bodysuit from Sabado. And yeah. um, there was uh, some Japanese dude that was there um, who was using this, like, sideways coil machine. Do you know that? I don't know. It was was a, it Washo? Maybe it was Washo. I just remember the the you know it wasn't like the direct drives you see today where the um the motor sits straight off the back. It was turned sideways, and so it was um on there. It was the first one of the first coil machines I remember seeing in person, and I was just tripped you out. Rotary, rotary or coil? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rotary. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what a trip, though, man. It was uh, that was a great great show. I got tattooed by Jeff yeah. Resher there. I think I'm pretty sure that was where I met Grime. Yeah, yeah. I'm that's... almost positive that was the, that was the weekend I met Grime, and I'm pretty. That was like right after Lou died, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Like right after Lou Scabaris died. I don't remember that. I I know. Uh, man, I just remember so many killers at that show: Paul Booth and Mike Wilson, and yeah, you know. fucking Little Vinny and Dave Waugh. Yes, and Higgs was there, and. Yeah. Ed Hardy was there. Yeah. What was, it, yeah it was what was it like working with Higgs? <laughs> um, you know, it's like, you know, working with one of your, like, I don't want to say idols, but somebody, you know, somebody who I held in such high regard. Mm-hmm. It was difficult because I had to, like, try to be a boss sometimes, mm-hmm. but I was really ineffective. And he, he told me, I ran into him a couple years ago and he said I was the, the best boss he's ever had. But I think that's because I was afraid to be his boss, you know, like, and it wasn't that I was scared of Dan, even though like he's, a, uh, he's extremely strong and I wouldn't ever want to fight Dan because he seems like he'd have like crazy, like Higgs rage. But it was, I felt, 
I felt awkward asserting myself with someone who was like a genius, you know, like, you know, he was like kind of a, he was, you know, an icon and I wasn't going to tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed that I assumed that he would follow typical expected tattoo shop protocol, but nah, like smoking in the shop, <laughs> forgetting to lock the door, throwing cigarettes in the trash can full of paper, you know, like shit that you're like, come on, you know, stuff that you would fire people for, but it was hit, but it was Dan, you know? And my biggest mistake was not getting more tattoos from him. And he even, he was like, well, I've got a cancellation. Do you want something? And I'm like, now, you know, I'll, I don't think about it or, you know, maybe next time. And I blew off a handful of opportunities to get tattooed by him. And I ended up only getting two. I got two from him in like 96 and I knew I should have gotten more, but that, like, that was the only regret of that whole thing. But when, when he quit, when he quit working with me, I, like I, I, I had like some weird parent, like paranoid reasons why he quit. Never really got, never really, never found out why he left the shop. But I came into work one day and there was an envelope uh, in the mail slot with his keys. On the outside of the envelope was a skull and crossbones, and on the inside was a little note that says, "I can no longer work here, nor do I wish to have a dialogue of the inexplicable." And I was like, all right, fair enough. He doesn't work here anymore. And I thought that I kind of, I like had this, this like sneaking suspicion that he was put off by like maybe some things he had seen in the shop. And, you know, I remember like I had like this, this fake book. It was like a, it would, you know, like, like a book that opens, Mm -hmm. but it's like a, like a, um, like a secret compartment kind of deal. Like you see in the cartoons and shit, had one of those and it had like a stack of the typical scumbag tattoo shop owner pictures, you know? And, you know, like you're, you know, you run a tattoo shop. Sometimes girls come in there and want to take their clothes off, you know? Right. So, you know, you have, you know, back in those days you had that shit. And, and I, I think I suspect that he found that looking to it for reference and opened it and found all these pictures that confirmed his suspicion that I was a fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was it, but I can't, that was just like, that was me like trying to rationalize. Like, why do you want to go? Like, what did I do? You know, I'm so I'm so easygoing, and I let him do whatever he wants, and I only take ten percent. You know? <laughs> like, what could I have What could I have done wrong? And I was like, maybe it's the pictures, pictures of that chick's tits. <laughs> <laughs> I heard he was tattooing again. Is that true? Have you heard anything about that? I, I, if he's tattooing again, I'm gonna go get tattooed by him. I haven't heard anything like that. Um, I know he's making music pretty prolifically, and he's selling paintings. But if he's getting tattooed, man, like. I can I can only imagine um, what the response would be. Mm-hmm. You know, very similar to like when Chris Kahn started tattooing again, yeah. and he auctioned all those all those tattoos on eBay. Wasn't that you incredible? Know? Like that was, was one of those things that I really felt like was a, a turning point. You know, in, in kind of the relationship with tattooing and the internet, because there was such yeah. a buzz about that man. Yeah, but like then he just goes and starts working again. You know, I know. Like, like how bummed would you be if you spent 3500 bucks on some exclusive thing only it's like if you spent a thousand dollars on like a concert ticket because it's their last tour mm-hmm. and then they fucking tour the next 10 years <laughs> right i guess you, you have know? you have that it was that experience with that particular yeah. one of I mean, the one of 10 i guess got, one of my friends one of my actually my who i consider to be my my closest friend she got tattooed as part of that whole experience and she spent 3500 bucks Hmm. And she got a tattoo of a chair and it's a magnificent 
really comfortable looking chair. And she said the experience was incredible and she wouldn't trade it for anything. And she's very happy, happy that she spent that much money. Mm -hmm. The tattoo, I think the tattoo and the drawing and the whole thing took about eight hours. So she felt like she really got her her money's worth the Mm -hmm. whole deal. You know, never any regret about it. And no one that I've spoken to has expressed, expressed any regret about doing it. Yeah. I think I would feel, I would feel bummed me personally, but I mean, it's probably just because of how I am and like the way my brain works and I'm like, you know, again, paranoid and, you know, like whatever else. Right. When, when, uh, when did the idea about Black Claw come to, to fruition? Well, I don't know about it being Black Claw until about two years ago, but prior to it becoming Black Claw, um, I was, uh, um, I was, you know, running. I had a, um, a tattoo supply store here in Portland called RCS, Rose City Supply or Rose City Steel, um, and uh, it's doing pretty well. But um, there were some parts of it that were was more it was more work than it was worth, mm. you know. And I found that running a supply company, you do a lot for the sake of convenience, for the lo- sake of convenience for artists, you know. Like if you sell you know, X, then you have to sell Y and Z. And I was, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the bottom line going, man, like I'm losing money on Thermofax paper. I'm losing money on green soap. I'm losing money on surface disinfectants and gloves because, you know, you have companies that are big, you know, bigger, like big box companies that are like the Amazon of tattoo supplies, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, Kingpin or Tatsol where they're able to purchase you know, 40, 50, 60, $80,000 worth of a product at a time in order to knock the price down so low to where they can afford to sell it next for next to nothing as a convenience and thereby sell every other product that goes along with it. So they get to sell the needles, they get to sell the tubes, which are, which are good markup items for some suppliers along with these things at like rock bottom prices to draw the customers away from the smaller supply companies that can't afford to spend so much money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, you know, like I should be focusing on the things that perform really well and that I know how to do. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not a green soap manufacturer. I'm not a a stencil machine, a stencil paper guy. Like this is, you know, I'm strictly being a middleman for something like that. It's not like I could get into, it's not like I could go to the company and ask them to change it to meet my demands. I'm so small, you know, like I could never spend enough money with the Spirit Master Company to get them to change the way they make Thermofax paper, to change the size or the color or anything like that. And now, now there are, you know, investors that are involved changing the way that the Spirit Master Company does business. But I was never able to have the means of that much of an impact. However, I knew that I could impact the way that needles were produced because I felt that I could illustrate to a manufacturer demand for a superior product uh, and i showed them I, I sent them i sent them samples f- across the board from the worst of the worst to the best of the best and i was like mm-hmm. i want to do something that's better than any of these i want quality control to be way above and beyond anything that any of these people are doing and i don't care what it costs because even if it's double what it costs already it's still a profitable item and it's still filling a void in in tattooing where there was no one doing a thing there was nobody making sure that every needle that's sold is pristine. You know, there's nobody who is employing that much work to, uh, to make sure that this thing was done the right way. And 
while I was running RCS, I was getting a lot of offers from needle manufacturers. They were like, buy our needles, use this, use that. You know, you see the ads from China all the time. And I was like, man, I don't trust this shit. Like the cost of stainless steel is going up. The cost of silver is going up, yet the price of needles are going down. The commodities prices are soaring through the roof, yet the product is coming in lower and lower. Like where are they cutting corners? And I, and I read this book about doing business in China and it talks about how there's corners cut as a way of life. It is part of the culture to cut corners, to make sure that once you agree on a price, figure out a way to make more profit after you've agreed on the price. There's no like, there's very little upfront negotiation. When somebody's like, yeah, I can do that thing for $4 for you, they go back to their factory and go, okay, I agreed to $4. Now, how can we make money after I said $4? Mm-hmm. They don't think of the expenses upfront. They think of like, what's the bare minimum that they can get by on and then start and they'll cut corners in like the packaging. They'll make the label a half of an inch smaller to save on paper. They'll make like literally, I'm not fucking kidding you. Like these are standard practices. Then this book, this guy talks about how he uh, was running. um, He was, he was purchasing shampoo for a company that was like Walgreens or Rite Rite Aid or something. He was purchasing like, like off brand shampoo from a manufacturer that was making it for big brands. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, somebody that normally makes it for like a bigger brand like Redken or, you know, Vidal Sassoon or something, whatever, they were selling a backdoor product to somebody like Walgreens and at like rock bottom prices. And what this guy was saying is the way they would cut corners is they would change the packaging. They would, you know, like the, the, the bottle they would, they'd agreed upon would be a half an ounce less capacity. So that way they were saving mm-hmm. a half an ounce and they would mark the label to say it was 24 ounces when it was really 23 and a half and so forth. I found this to be the case with the needles. I started lab testing the needles and I was like, I, I was like, I want to know what's in them because you know, I read all these articles about kids' toys and dog food having lead. And I'm like, there's got to be fucking lead in the needles. So I had a bunch of needles lead tested when I was still doing RCS and um, found that the majority of major brands, the majority of brands that everyone clamors to and says that is like their go-to were riddled with lead. 300, 100 to 300 times the legal threshold for household paint. So that was my that was my starting point i was like well there's only there's only one way to go from here and i i went to the manufacturer and i basically was like look i'm not going to settle for anything less than this this is the standard we're shooting for and if you send me anything less than this i'm not going to pay for it and around this time i had been uh i was talking with uh bill stevenson waverly color waverly bill um about doing something like this and i knew bill to be a very shrewd businessman um, and a very organized person who was really good at a grassroots type of a business. And he and I flew to San Francisco to go talk to Grime about becoming partners. And we were like, you know, Grime has a stellar reputation in the business. Everybody knows that he will not co-sign something that isn't top-notch. And uh, we felt that if we had his input, his collaboration, his design skill, his reputation along with my work ethic – and Bill's uh, business acumen, then we could probably create something that was really cool. Um, and we had a couple of meetings with Grime to pitch our ideas to him. And eventually he was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea and something I'd want to be part of. Um, he was like, I just don't want to have to do a ton of work. He was like, you guys, 
you guys do the majority of the work, I'll do the design stuff. And what ended up happening is over the first six months, we realized that we didn't want it to grow organically. We didn't want it to be a thing. Bill Bill's approach to business is a very organic, very down-to-earth, very slow-moving and methodical approach to business. He likes to let it grow on its own. Grime and I are very energetic and we, we're a strike while the iron is hot kind of, kind of people. We wanted this thing to, to just like – we were like, man, we want to fucking kick down doors and and upset the business. We, we didn't want to just like slide in under people's noses. We wanted to announce that we were doing something different and we were here for tattooers and we're doing something that nobody else had done before. And it was to be extremely protective of the tattoo trade from within it. Not approach it as an outsider and go, hmm, how can we profit from these people that we don't really know and, and glean information in order to make better products? We were like, let's make better products with the information that we have, working with our peers and the passion and energy that we have to protect this thing that's been so good to us. And we eventually uh, dissolved our partnership with Bill in an amicable way. In a really respectful way, because Bill, Bill's been—I've uh, been friends with Bill for over 20 years. Um, I gave him his first tattoo machines. He printed my first T-shirts for me. You know, like we've known each other a really long time, and we we had to part ways in a way that honored our friendship and um, honored what uh, what our goal was as businessmen. You know, and uh, we just agreed that it was best if Grime and I went went and did our thing. And Bill went and did his thing, and he ended up. Bill ended up opening a brewery, <laughs> and he's he's killing it. He's doing awesome, and we're stoked to see that. And uh, Grime and I have uh, taken on the role of uh, I'm the director of operations, and he's the creative director. And we actually have like legit, like real full time jobs now with Black Claw, where uh, like I have I have an operations manager that I work directly with, and you know Grime is handling virtually all of the design decisions from san francisco he he's doing all the illustration and everything that he makes gets forwarded to our design team at the the branding company we work with and um wesley who is like essentially the 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 cogs in the machine for black claw like he's the one who answers all the emails he's the one who deals with uh the the freight forwarding and logistics he's the one who deals with the manufacturer he gets them grime gets them paid um but uh wes is the one who he kind of keeps everything running smoothly. Um, and it's a, it's a three man operation. It's just me and grime and Wes now. And it's for Wes, it's extremely full time. Um, and for grime and myself, the, the biggest part of it for us now is planning for future developments and products and social media. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, you know, right now we're working, uh, we're working on the state of grace convention um, and you know, we, we like that's, we want to, we want the brand to grow in a direction, um, that's a little bit more broad reaching and not just needles. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, sort of addressing the things within the tattoo business that we see to be either lacking or within the clutches of a corporate, um, uh, hij- hijacking essentially of our culture, you know, like where you have investment groups that are, um, purchasing, uh, tattoo supply companies with no real, um, there's with no real vested interest other than financial. They're not, they're not saying like, well, we better make sure this is a really good product because we care about the customer. 
well, we better make sure this is something that's going to look out for the longevity of the tattoo business. They're like, well, right now it's popular. Ink Master is one of is the highest rated show on Spike on Spike TV. We better strike while the iron is hot and take the money we can while this business is popular. You know, it's just like the same thing happened with skateboarding. You know, when skateboarding become became wildly popular, everybody wanted a part of skateboarding. It became on you know like every T-shirt in a mall had skateboarders on it. Mm-hmm. You know, every corporate sponsor wanted something to do with it. Nike has a fucking skateboarding team, whereas years ago they wouldn't have had anything to do with it because it wasn't a profitable business. You know, and Grime and I, I kind of, I guess we we try to liken ourselves to. Um, were, you, were you ever a skateboarder? Yeah. Yep. Remember World Industries? Yeah. And, and what those guys did in the early 90s? Like when everybody, when there was a mass exodus from from the large skateboard companies, when everybody left Powell, Peralta, and Vision, and all those companies, and they formed the small companies. Everybody left and you know they, they came up with Blind and World and 101 and H Street and all these companies that were formed by skateboarders. And they were like, you know what? Fuck you. I don't need a boss in a suit who doesn't skate. That's kind of what Grime and I are trying are trying to do with tattooing is take it back from the people who don't even care about it, who won't even get tattooed, who don't like people with tattoos, who are just looking at it as an investment opportunity for right now. Whereas we, this is our lives, you know, this is we've invested our entire lives to this thing. Mm-hmm. Like I've more than half of my life I've spent in in tattoo shops, you know, mm-hmm. as an active participant. You know, so this is something that we do care deeply about and um, want to want to create an impact that's recognized and appreciated um, for really what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do want to get to talk about uh, you, the machine building because, man, I think, you know, as far as that goes, creativity wise and what you've done with that, <clears throat> I think you're up there with the best in the world. And. Um, really but where do you say. where do you see with um, you know having those models like skateboarding to look at and knowing where we're at with tattooing right now? Where do you see things going? I don't know. I mean, I, it's like can it can it go up anymore? <laughs> I mean, is it you know like has it plateaued? Is it a lateral move at this point? You know, like I um what what used to drive me with machines i mean well it's it's changed what's driven me over the years has changed it it went from i just want to make really good tools you know and it went from i just want to make really good tools to i just want to make really good tools that people want and then it became i just want to make something different because everybody else is are is now making enough there's like it it went in stages you know like with the forums you know like when the forums came about all that information became shared and it was no longer an exclusive thing. There was, there was no exclusivity to the information anymore. And anybody with an internet connection and a pair and a pair of snips could make a decent machine. Right. And it, it, you know, like everybody's got a machine company and everybody's got limited editions and everyone's got one-offs and everyone's got production models and every, it's like, it went from being something that some tattooers did to being something that you're supposed to do. And it's like you you should have a flash set and you should have a, a machine out. And once you have a machine out, you should have one-offs and then you should have a production machine and then you should have, you know, this and then you need to have a line of ink and then you need all these other things. It's like, it's like you know, like completing the set of all the accomplishments you're supposed to have as a tattooer. And somewhere along the line, um, 
it just became this this pissing contest to see who could sell the most tattoo machines. And you know, I, admittedly, I participated in that. Like, I felt you know, I felt pressure to 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 build more machines when I saw other people build more machines. I'm like, well, I can't get that. Let that guy sell more machines than me because that means his are more popular than mine. You know, and it was bullshit. Like, like, you know, you look at people that are flying below the radar, making stellar machines that no one even knows about. Um, you know, Dave Bryant or uh, Scott Velmholm and these guys that like no one knows about, but that make great stuff and they're way happier. They don't have, you know, $15,000 a month in machinists overhead. They don't have the stress of, you know, a hundred people wondering where the machine is, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that, um, where it's gone for me is now I just make stuff when I want to make stuff, uh-huh. you know, like I've got, I've got a, a cool thing with workhorse. Um, and they make it really easy for me to produce stuff like the, the parts, the frames they make are spot on now. Like, you know, it was years of trial and error to make, to get it to where it is, you know, like it was so much work, you know, starting out, like we, we started workhorse. It was a lot of, you know, a lot of wonky, we didn't know anything. We were using like really wonky iron castings and, and the machinists hadn't worked with that sort of stuff before. And it's become, it's become a lot more consistent now. So the machines go to go together way, way more, more easily. And, uh, they're more consistent and I can make 10 in a row run exactly the same when I need to, you know, and when it comes to the custom stuff, um, if I get an idea for something, like I'll go to the workshop and make something, you know, but it's no, I no longer feel this like need to keep up. You know, I don't pay attention to who's doing what on the internet. I don't care who's selling how many tattoo machines. I've completely dropped out of that game. Yeah. I don't care. Like, you when, know, I might go a week without posting anything on my social media and then it'll be a picture of a fucking waterfall. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when, you know, my peers, my friends or my, my competitors are, you know, posting up machine after machine after machine and like photos of like, you know, their trip to the post office with a hundred machines in a box, you know, like that shit used to stress me out and make me feel like I need to work harder. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't want that fucking life. You know, like if people want my shit, they'll get it. And if they don't, they don't cool, whatever, you know? And, and, uh, um, you know, it was, it, there was a period where I was like, I'm going to invent weird shit just cause I can, no one else was doing it. You know, like nobody did this or no one did that. And then as soon as you do it, someone else does it, uh-huh. you know? So it's like, fucking why bother? You know, if it's like, you know, like, and it's, I, I feel it's the social media because, you know, like you'll, you know, I hate the word. I hate it when somebody goes, you know, like when you post this thing as if everybody knows what the fuck you're talking about when you post something, you know, but it's assumed that it means social media. You know, did you see that post by so-and-so? Did you see this thing so-and-so posted? And it's just always assumed that it's Instagram. It used to be Facebook. Before that, it was MySpace. Before right. that, it was the forum. And it was like, you know, people would be like, see that thing on the forum? You know, but now, you know, you know, you know where I'm going. So anyway, um, you know, I'd, I'd make this thing and I'd be all stoked on it and people would, you know, comment on it. And I'd get a hundred fucking comments and people losing their shit over it. And then six months later, I'd see somebody else post the same fucking thing and people will go, man, that's an amazing idea. You're a fucking genius. <laughs> like, God damn it. Like, fuck that dude. You know? <laughs> so yeah. now I just don't bother. You know, it's like I, I, I might tinker around shit and show my friends, but I don't, I don't fucking bother because I feel like it's, it's lost on most people. Mm-hmm. You know, when did the change happen? When did you decide? Um, was there a moment like where you were just like, I've had enough. I'm just gonna, you know, concentrate on other things. I think, 
when I think really like understanding what I wanted from a relationship with a partner and my kids and what is it, what am I chasing after, you know? And, uh, the woman that I'm, that, that I have as a, I'm fortunate to have as a partner is, um, extremely fair family oriented. Um, she's extremely giving and caring and kind and, she, um, she takes amazing care of me and the kids. And I never had any, any situation like that before. You know, like I grew up in, uh, extremely dysfunctional homes my whole life, never saw an example of a good relationship. So I had no, no idea what to do or what to expect reasonably. I had no idea. Uh, I had no template for parenting, no template for, uh, a functional relationship. And Stephanie, my, my partner comes from an, an incredibly, loving and, um, close family. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never seen people who had dinner together every night and who prayed together and, you know, who uh, spent every holiday together and who actually really enjoy spending time with one another. And when I first started, uh, when I, when we first started seeing each other and she brought me around her family, I was so freaked out by it. I was like, man, it gave me the worst anxiety. Like I'm here. I am in a situation with people who are genuinely loving with one another and it's freaking me out. <laughs> like, what, like, what am I doing here? Like, you know, and I, and to, and to kind of top that off, like when I met, when I met her parents, they ran a criminal background check on me and I'm like, what is it? What is it that they see in me that made them think that that made yeah. them feel like they needed to run a criminal background check? They found out about that shit from Baltimore. God damn it. They, did. <laughs> they fucking did. They, uh, and fortunately, they didn't really hold it against me too much. But, you know, they, they, of course, they had to see what their daughter was getting herself into, sure. moving across the country with some dude, you know. Um, but uh, for me, the turning point, I can't I can't nail it down to a moment. But I would say within this last year um, that she's lived with me here and lived with me and the kids, within this last year, um, my priorities have shifted mm-hmm. considerably. And... I, um, I saw this sort of stuff in certain friends of mine, you know, Aaron Kane, for example, he's like Mr. Family man. Like he does, he never leaves his house. He's always with his kids. He's like super dads, you know, does, he's like a soccer coach and you know, he's home every day doing shit with them. And I always like, always admired it. I was like, man, he's such a good dad, but it never occurred to me to engage the way that he does it just cause it, it like it escaped me. The, the, the way the means of doing it had, had always escaped me. I did, had no idea how to wrap my brain around what he was doing. Even though I knew that it was what I was supposed to do, I couldn't quite figure it out. And I've always had a good relationship with my kids, but at the same time, I've always been gallivanting all over the world, chasing after something, you know? Yeah. And I went from having like, top level airline status where I was getting complimentary free first class upgrades all the time to having nothing because my, the amount of travel, the frequency has diminished so much because I'm home all the time now that like I've like I hate traveling now cause I no longer get first class. I'm like, <laughs> like I just want to stay home. I, I bail out of trips now more than I go on them. Whereas I used to be somewhere every month yeah. and I was flying once or twice a month constantly and I, and I, it's really now, this is the first time in my entire life that I felt at home in a city, at home in my house, in my home, at home with a partner and at home with myself. Uh-huh. And that 
is what drives my uh, my interest in a different in a direction away from trying to compete with what the tattoo business is up to. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, that's it. Make sure you tune in next episode and you can hear part two of my conversation with Seth Safari. Thanks for all the listens, guys. Thanks for all the love on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you follow me on there at OG Joe Swanson. If you'd like to get tattooed by me or hire me to speak at, host your event, podcast at your event, hit me up in an email, ogjoeswanson at gmail.com. I appreciate it. Enjoy your right now and keep hustling, everybody.